Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. Welcome to the glorious, glorious past. The first of our Wimbledon Relived podcasts. We'll be doing 14 of them over the next fortnight when Wimbledon should have been taking place. Um, and it's actually a, it's a strange feeling this morning, waking up and knowing that we should all have been wandering through the, the park in Wimbledon Um laughing at all the people that have spent four nights in a tent uh, in hopes of getting their hands on a Wimbledon ticket and knowing that we should have been wandering into the All England Club and and anticipating the first day's play. Actually, I've been a bit blindsided by it myself. I wasn't expecting, you know, we've known Wimbledon's been cancelled for a long time. I wasn't expecting to feel this sort of melancholy on the actual day um but your tweet didn't help david so thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that yes yeah, so i i was one of many many people who suddenly started tweeting pictures of queues and uh first sights when we get to wimbledon but then you talk about being sort of blindsided and I, I do feel we kind of, in this strange way, almost normalise this situation because this is what we are having to deal with now, the whole world. This is this is it. Um, but at the same time, when you then transport your mind back 12 months and think, if somebody had told you that Novak Djokovic, who is trying to defend his Wimbledon title in 12 months' time, will be self-isolating from a virus that has cancelled Wimbledon. Just imagine if somebody went back in time and told us three that on day one of Wimbledon 2019. Thanks for that reminder that we're all living in a dystopian horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, thank goodness for Tennis Relived because uh, to, to me, this just gives us a, a structure, a daily purpose, but it also just helps to bring alive why we fell in love with the sports and what we hold so dear about it and also find out loads about it because I I mean, I just feel like I've glossed over the past in my tennis watching career. D- David uh, Law this, glossing over the past? Yeah. Never. Well, I, d- I, d- I believe that. And now here I am, I'm able to just sort of find a reason to go through all these books that have been on my shelves. 
Thank goodness for the past is all I can yeah. say. Uh, we've got a. We, we are going to cover the not so glorious present uh, just for a few minutes before we uh, take a trip down memory lane. Not to worry, but just first, um, just want to check in with Matt. What's your level of uh, of melancholia this morning? Um, well, actually, in my mind, I kind of like like you were saying, just accepted that Wimbledon wasn't happening and it has really hit me this morning david being one of those people as he said sharing sharing the images to get us all going um but i think it's because wimbledon doesn't sit on its own in the in the calendar wimbledon is part of the wider tennis story if you like in a year and because we've not had the uh, points leading up to Wimbledon it doesn't really feel like Wimbledon time because Wimbledon comes after Queens and we've not had Queens it comes after the French Open and we've not had that so to suddenly see all these pictures of uh, of Wimbledon makes you realize yeah it, it would have been today and yeah it certainly does make me make me sad I mean I've got I'm sure you two both have far long far longer streaks than I have but you know I've always been quite proud of the fact that I've managed to get to Wimbledon multiple years in a row since I was since I was really quite small and uh, suddenly not going to be there this year it is um it is sad but e- equally part of me has accepted it as well we're not going to count this year in the streak matt i don't i don't think this is a streak disrupting year if there's no wimbledon to go to Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's not our fault. Is that's it? how True. I feel about it. Um, I, don't, I don't want to add to, add to your sense of melancholia, but I feel like we should get all of the the bad stuff out of the way first before we have a lovely, lovely trip back to to 1978, um, because tennis has been being tennis again, um, and, and of course the the last podcast that we recorded was uh, on Tuesday night UK time, which was the day that we had had the news that that Novak Djokovic and his wife Elena had tested positive for COVID-19. They were asymptomatic at the time. We haven't had any further updates. They were um, at that point going into into self-isolation. We had Simon Briggs on the pod um, and we discussed in quite a lot of detail, sort of speculated about where the story might go f- from there and he thought it would it would go go quiet and it, I guess it did for, for, for a couple of days and then on Friday we had the news that Goran Ivanovic, who had been involved in the Zadar leg of the Adria Tour, he had tested positive, also was asymptomatic at the time of testing positive, and he was going into self-isolation as well. Now, that felt really significant because he was one of those that at the time of that um, sort of game-changing announcement from Grigor Dimitrov that he had tested positive and, and was was suffering with symptoms. Um, then we had the raft of, of all the players that were involved in the in the Edra Tour getting tested and, and Goran was one of those to announce that he had tested negative um, and he had subsequently tested negative again, didn't have any symptoms and then I believe it was on his third test um, some five days after his first test or possibly even six that he eventually tested positive um, thereby providing evidence, not that it was needed because we're four months into this pandemic now and there's a reason for the rules and regulations that are in place, but providing a a very easy uh, illustration of why the self-isolation rules exist regardless of how you test. So that happened on Friday and then on Sunday, just as uh, people were 
chucking themselves in to to watch the final of the Battle of the Brits won by won by Dan Evans over Kyle Carl Edmund yesterday. Or well, certainly that's what tennis fans in the UK were doing. We had um the breaking of a video on Instagram broken by uh by one of our colleagues, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, um of Alexander Zverev uh partying in Monaco, seemingly without a care in the world. Um, Alexander Zverev, who five days previously had released a what a statement that we had very much praised at the time for striking the right note, the right tone, saying that he had tested negative after participating in the Edra tour, but would be self-isolating anyway, in accordance with the guidelines. Um, and he, I think, was the first player to to apologise um for for his for his reckless actions and for for any harm he might have done by participating in that tour so to see that video yesterday i don't know about you two well i do know about you two because we we had some quite extensive discussion about it on the whatsapp chat i i found it really hard to watch it made me so angry so so angry that video that was actually possibly my low point of um, this whole um, Adria Tour catastrophe, really, because all I could think of when I watched that video is the sacrifices and compromises and agonising decisions that people have made throughout the course of this this pandemic, this crisis. Not just for for their own sake, but for the sake of for the sake of others, for the sake of people they don't even know, for the sake of the greater good. Um, and this multimillionaire can't even stay inside in his presumably extremely lovely home in Monte Carlo for two weeks, um, and he certainly can't doing do can't disobey the rules without wanting to to get some credit for for sticking to them by by releasing the statement that he did. I mean it it made my blood boil. Honestly, I found it really mm. hard to stomach. Yeah, same. Um, my first thought upon seeing it is is that definitely current is that definitely today because i can't i can't believe that he would do that i can't believe that he would release that statement even if it has been written for him he's he is a, not a stupid man in terms of intelligence and to, I, I think he's got a brain personally when i see him talk and hear him talk it, there are things seem to stitch together by the sounds of things but he has either got a complete blind spot or he just doesn't care. Um, and either one of those is not acceptable to me. It's it's absolutely appalling that he he would just just think, oh, forget it. I want to go to a party. I'm going to go and mix with people. I've tested negative. Um, so be it. Whatever, whatever has caused him to do that, and, and we believe that it is a current video, actually, that it is not something historical, well, it's pretty shameful. Yeah, it smacks of arrogance and entitlement. And it was swiftly deleted from the Instagram story that was showing it. You know, it was already out there. It was, it, they were deleting it far too late. And just the way they were just shoving it in people's faces by even plunking it on that story was, was horrible. Um, yeah, it just made me really mad once again that this, this story just rumbles on because of the reckless behavior of, of more and more tennis players. Uh, we should say that uh, Goran Ivanisevic showing those negative tests and then a positive is yet another 
indication that Dominic Team should not have been doing what he's been doing for the last two weeks, which is travelling back and forth between Vienna and the south of France to play in the Muratoglu exhibition. And he was... He was he was kind of joking about it on on the broadcast of that ultimate tennis showdown over the weekend, saying that he's the most negative guy on tour, just just laughing about it, and it's just it's just not something to laugh about. And I think there's been one small apology on his Instagram, but nothing nothing to show that he was self isolating or taking the appropriate steps that he should be taking. And I'm really disappointed in in him and obviously Zverev as well because i think i think maybe some people was were cutting them all a little bit of slack i know we certainly weren't but some people were saying that you know the event shouldn't have been allowed to go ahead maybe the authorities should have stepped in and stopped the adria tour and the players were kind of uh, participants in it I, I i disagree with that line of thinking i think raonic has come out and said that he had the foresight to realize that that tour was a bad idea and these players should have should have realized that themselves but okay it was the first offense but now this is a second offense when they've got the knowledge they should have been making appropriate informed educated decisions they've got all the means to be able to do that and he just he just hasn't and um yeah it really really made me angry i i know tennis is an extremely selfish sport i know to be successful at it at at the level that that these guys were talking about are it it requires a level of selfishness and tunnel vision. I know they're all multimillionaires and don't live a life that we can necessarily relate to, but I am still astonished by the extent to which they seem out of touch with reality and with the real world. Um, it, it's one thing to it, it, it's not just the the flouting of the rules. Um, but it's also the, yeah, the, the casual dismissiveness of the significance of that. You know, Dominic, Dominic team making that joke. I know, you know, you, you could probably try and pass it off as a just a slight misjudgment or miscalculation. But that for me was as indicative of, of his actual, as his actual behaviours of, of how he feels about it. It's just so out of touch with... With everything else that the world, what the world, the re, what the rest of the world is experiencing, and I know that we're in this sort of slightly unsatisfactory stage of, of lockdown and the pandemic, where we're kind of being trusted a little bit more, rightly or wrongly, and, and everybody is kind of making their own risk assess, assessments and their own calculations of risk and reward. Um, you know, you've got an example of that in the in the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, all of those people going on those protests are, you know, te- technically in a lot of places in violation of the regulations are putting their own health at risk. But but I get it because to to them and a lot of people that that have that have made the difficult decision not to go on those protests, it's a matter of life and death just as much as the pandemic is. And I understand that and I understand how agonizing that that risk assessment must have been. But that's extremely high stakes stuff. We're talking about some poxy exhibition matches for for team and we're talking about a party for Alexander Zverev. These are not agonising risk-reward calculations. These are arrogant, entitled flouting of very, very important 
regulations. And, and, it- and once again, it's it, it's a message sender, isn't it? It's it's the danger. The dangers go beyond just the physical potential for them to transmit the virus. It's also telling that everybody that follows them, it's okay, folks. You know, if you you follow me, this is what I do. And, you know, you can do it too, really. And I do think the the tours and the US Open need to be looking at this and thinking we need some strict protocols in place. There was a there was a press conference with the US Open, what was it, ten days ago or so when they were announced that they were happening this year and Stacey Allister, the new tournament director, said that we have faith in our players to be responsible. Well, if the last 10 days have shown anything it's that okay it's a so far it's just been a handful of male players but that's all it takes to disrupt the plans for the resumption of the tours um so i do think that what we're seeing will actually be having an impact on the return of tennis or the potential return of tennis in the next six weeks as well um because this sort of this sort of reckless behaviour and not doing what they're told to do isn't going to wash during a tournament. So it's got big implications both for the health risk of the people who are at those parties and events with Zverev and also going forward in terms of tennis as well. Yeah, if the last few weeks has taught us anything, it's don't trust anybody's common sense. <laughs> All sense of responsibility, certainly not tennis players. There are a lot of people calling for for a, an official code of conduct conduct for the for the players and their teams um, for the U.S. Open. <clears throat> so we'll uh, we'll watch we'll watch that space. Um, I'm itching to get into to happier territory, the safety of just, 1978. Just to, say, <laughs> just to say as well, and we will. Just as a, a contrast to that, we have seen tennis players that can handle themselves pretty impeccably in in Britain, and I think it's happened in the US as well at the closed doors event in Charleston, and and they had uh, a, a situation in certainly in London where where they they led the kind of small time version of what the US Open will hope to be: loads of testing, no crowds, um, no problems. And Dan Evans won it. Dan Evans won it. He was good, wasn't he? 300 to he 1 won. for the US Open. Yeah, is he? Yep. Blimey neck. Yeah. I mean, imagine if, you know, half the top 20 don't show up. 300 to 1 for Dan Evans. He was good, I mean, I, I don't do betting because I don't even know how, but I understand that those are, um, I'd say those are, you know, attractive odds for Dan Evans for a potentially asterisky US Open. He was really good this week, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And he's been good all, all year. He's been playing top 20 tennis, really. When you look at the players he's beaten this year, Goffin, De Menor, Murray now, um, Rublev, I think, as well. So, you know, he, he really picked up where he had left off on the tour. Um, but I still think 300 to 1 is probably about right to be fair i mean he's never <laughs> he's never got beyond the third round no he's got never got beyond the fourth round of the slam to, to um, be clear this is not a prediction <laughs> i would i would like to make that extremely clear uh, i go for 80 to 1 david are you already picturing um, an open top bus tour around solihull <laughs> has one of those well, ever happened before yes it has catherine uh, well, when exactly I think it's something to do with the Solihull Moors football team. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, an open top bust 
tour with just him on top of the bus with the trophy, that would be all very socially responsible. Yeah, but you couldn't have any crowds, so that's just a guy on a bus. people in their front gardens. (laughs) Just stream it. (laughs) That's just a man taking the bus with a big trophy. (laughs) And a mask on, because you've got to wear a mask on public transport. Probably a small trophy, because they only give you a replica, don't they? Yeah, I think we're possibly getting ahead of ourselves. But but David thinks (laughs) 80 to 1. Yeah. All right. I, I think 300, 300 to 1 is the sort of thing you get for, you know, somebody from outer space coming into the draw and winning it. Okay, this is this is why we're rubbish at predictions, <laughs> folks. Should we should we head back to a a simpler time, a happier time? Um the past. Yes, the safety yes, of the past. Um we're going back to 1978 um and Martina Navratilova's first Wimbledon title, her first Grand Slam title, beating her, well, her already rival, Chris Evert, but it, it was very much the early days of their rivalry, one that would bloom into, as we've already discussed on previous Relived podcasts, what we think is the greatest rivalry tennis has ever seen. We're actually going to, we're going to focus on the 78 match and also her final Wimbledon title in 1990 when she beat Zena Garrison in the final. And we're going to just take the opportunity to look back on the extraordinary Wimbledon career of nine-time champion Martina Navratilova. But first, David, aha, I'm going to tell you what happened in 1978. (laughs) Hooray! It's my big moment. (laughs) I've been waiting for this. Um, NASA unveiled its first group of female astronauts. 1978, yeah, strong year. Um... We had the world's first test tube baby being born in the UK. The Garfield comic strips debuted in US newspapers. I don't know about you, but I was really into Garfield as a kid. And it was a big joke in my family because my brother was a voracious intellectual reader. And the joke was Kathy only reads Garfield. (laughs) Ah, um, Sweden became the first nation to ban aerosols. That was that was that was the fact I was hoping for about 1978. Was that ozone related? Um, I don't know, David. That's all I've got. <laughs> and what, what happened to the test tube baby? Is that did that work oh, out? She, she. I remember seeing an interview with her last year. Oh right. Well, it or did maybe work it was out. two years ago on the anniversary. In fact, I think it was the anniversary. I think it was on her 40th birthday in 2018. Yeah. Can you send me the link? Like well, I mean, not that. right now, but sure. <laughs> okay, later. Um, big year in Pope land. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually presenting mid-morning matters and it's great. Um, put, there were three popes in 1978. Pope John Paul VI died um, and then Pope John Paul I... No, hang on. Pope Paul VI died... Then Pope John Paul I died after only 33 days in Papal See. And then there was Pope John Paul II. Oh, and he was he was around yeah. for ages. Yeah. He, he, well, they needed one to stick around for mm. a bit after that year. <laughs> after 78. Um, Greece and Saturnite, Saturday Night Fever were both released. Um, oh. Yeah, so good year for... for those sorts of films. But a big year for John Travolta. Um, <laughs> Boney M had the biggest selling singles with Brown Girls in the Ring. 
God, you get more more for your money with Catherine's yeah, seventy eight. I know. I'm being. I mean, I'm really. It, it was a really um, mega year. Not all the years are this fun. So I'm I'm really going big on seventy eight. Um, and Gaston Gaudio, Tom Haas, <laughs> Patty Schneider, James Corden, and Nicole Scherzinger, ex girlfriend of Gregor Dimitrov, were all born. Right. I, I mean, I was thinking, what was Gaston Gaudio yeah. won in 1978? <laughs> I'm going big on 1978, followed by the words Gaston Gaudio. <laughs> and Radek on, Stepanek. Yeah. And Patty Schneider. Big year you know, for Burns. I mean, that's is, quite a is, cool group. Yeah. Is Gaston Gaudio still doing the, the, month, the days of the month on his Twitter? What? Every single day, he, he'll just say what date it is. Really? Is that a or, thing? Or what day is of he the misunderstood is. The, the platform? <laughs> He did that for several years. I I'm just trying to wonder whether he still does it. I'm not sure I but, follow Gaston Gaudio. No, well, and now I know why. it caused me to unfollow. <laughs> right. Oh, and also, I should say, Darkness on the Edge of Town came out in 1978, which... Very important. Very, I just thought I should get that in. Is that your favourite Bruce album? Yes. Yeah. It's number one on the list. Yeah. Somebody did write, a listener did write to Matt today. recently and asked him to list his top 10 Bruce albums in order. Mm. And Matt took that task extremely seriously. Yeah, it took me like two weeks to reply. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we talk about some tennis from 1978? Yeah, I can inform you that Gaston Gaudio stopped saying what day of the week it was in September the 21st, 2017, um, having done so for several years. <laughs> Just informing us what the day was and the date. However, have we been able to keep a track of it that since 2017? Um, also in 1978, Martina Vatilova was 21 years old. Chris Evert was 23 years old. They were the, the top two seeds, Evert the top seed, Navratilova the second seed. But Evert was the heavy favourite for that Wimbledon. She was a seven-time Grand Slam champion at that time. She was a two-time Wimbledon champion and Martina Navratilova hadn't won a Grand Slam title at that stage. And it's funny, we don't talk or think much about the the time it took. Her, her career had such longevity, you kind of assume she started really, really young winning Grand Slam titles. But in that 1978 Wimbledon, Martina Navratilova was playing in her sixth Wimbledon. She she had played five times previously. It took her six attempts to to win it. Still at only twenty one years of age, but it it must have been becoming a a thing in her mind mm. that that she she hadn't won one. She hadn't got over the line. Yeah, that took me by surprise when I read the the research that uh, that Matt had done for this, and we were looking into the 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 background to this particular match i did not realize that that it had been a, that many years of navratilova kind of underachieving really at, at that level she it was a, it was a little bit lendl like lots and lots of results that you could hang your hat on and say here's somebody who should be doing big things and yet isn't um and and i agree with you the thing is because we now look back at her career and i only remember her career from the 80s when she was the all conquering martina navratilova and when you look at the sheer number of titles most successful player wimbledon's ever had and yet at the start i mean there was really no sign of that that happening and i think there were a lot of very understandable reasons why that wasn't happening she obviously had a very complex life certainly at a young age where she was well, she was defecting from Czechoslovakia to the United States. And I think 
as much as I think we talked about this on our Fed Cup relived show, as much as she got personal freedom, it came with a heavy price. You know, she she's talked about how she was on the phone with her parents whenever she could get through and those calls were ending in tears. And I think it must have been a very emotional time for her. On the one hand, she's got this great thing. She's able to play tennis. But on the other hand, she's away from her family. She's figuring out who she is, where she belongs. You know, she was writing stateless on all her on all her um, kind of entry cards into tournaments and in terms of the travel. And I think that weighed on her for a long time. And I think the sort of nadir of her early career was the 19... 19- 76 US Open where she lost in the first round to uh, Janet Newbury who I was reading said that she saw Navratil over at the net already in tears and she said I never want to see another human look like that she was so sad so upset with where her game was Navratil over but then in the months that followed she managed to massively sort of go under a bit of a transformation of self-creation and turn herself into this incredible athlete and by the time the 1978 Wimbledon final came around she was she was kind of ready because she'd beaten Everett in Eastbourne the week prior she'd snapped a losing streak against Everett Everett had had a a four-month off period at the start of the year where she hadn't played any tennis and Navratilova had wrapped up a a 37-match winning streak during that time she was kind of coming up and she just needed to beat Everett in a Grand Slam final to kind of that was the last step Um, and obviously she she managed to do it. That's the thing. She had all of that going on and she also had Chris Evert standing in her way because although they, they had huge undulations in, in their rivalry over the the illustrious course of it and, and for long periods, Navratilova had the better of it. Up until this point, yes, she had had wins over Evert, but she hadn't figured out the way, a way to consistently get the better of her. This was already their 26th career meeting incredibly they were only 21 and 23 and and yes ever had, had missed that period at the beginning of 78 but she was still considered the absolute dominant force she'd she'd been number one for 138 of the 148 of the 140 weeks that that the wta rankings had, had been computerized at that point and and her head sorry it was their 27th meeting the the head to head going in was 21 and 5 in chris evert's favor but i do wonder as you say Matt, how crucial that that victory at eastbourne a couple of weeks before would have been because that would have been the one most fresh in your mind and perhaps it, it, enough to to be able to to create a, a confidence trick in your own mind because because you could see her grow in confidence over the course of the match, I thought, Navratilova. She looked, she did look um, a bit troubled by self-doubt at the start, but you could almost see her, her grow. And she's so nervous at the start that there are lots of reports that she completely mistimed her curtsy to the Royal Box. She sort of went too early. They're meant to kind of turn around and do it together, and, and, and she just got it wrong. Um, and then And then they're suddenly surrounded by... I mean, upwards of 30 cameramen right in their faces straight away. I mean, I can't imagine how nerve-wracking that must make you feel. Like the eyes of the world are quite literally on you and the lenses and you've got no time to breathe or room to think. And yeah, she does have a nervous start to the match. If that happened now, those 
photographers would be just rugby tackled to the ground by security, wouldn't mm. they? I mean, they're literally on the court at the umpire's chair, right around. You can barely see the players. Mm. They're just surrounded by human beings, and then and then they instead of the coin flip. They just do the racket spin, the wooden, the old wooden racket. They just spin it on the ground to find out who's going to serve first. And by they, not the umpire. Yeah, it was uh, was it Martina or was it Chrissy that it was, did it? I think it was Martina who sp- who spun her racket. Yeah, she's she's just there um, getting a bag ready at, at the net, and she takes one of them out and just sort of tosses it on the floor, and that's the that's the coin toss. <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of marvelous, um, but but yeah, you I I. I, I <laughs> It was funny, we, we, we've just watched extended highlights of the 78 final Everton-Navratilova and the, the 1919 final um, Navratilova-Garrison, which was, which was Navratilova finally getting that, that ninth title, having been stuck on eight for, for a few years, losing to Steffi Graf in, in the previous two finals. And she was completely dominant in that 1990 final. And she was this... Just incredible athletic specimen. I know that's something we always say when we talk about Martina. And you kind of assume that that was ever thus. But mm. but uh, yes, she's an incredible athletic specimen in the 78 final. But you, you can see how much, how much more so even she is by, by 1990 and how, how she grew into that part of her game. And, and 78 was kind of early days of her being that athletic force. Chris Everett talked about the their early meetings and uh, I think this was a line she gave in, in that interview I did with her a few, a few, which we released a few weeks ago. She, she remembered thinking in their first few meetings, God, if this girl ever gets fit, then she's going to be a real challenge to mm-hmm. me. And it's amazing to think of anybody thinking of, of the, you know, the, the woman that, that changed the fitness side of the sport. Anyone thinking of her that way? I think she lost something like 22 pounds between the end of the 1976 season and the start of the 1977 season, that period I was referencing earlier. Um, but yeah, I've, I've heard Chris Everett say that she thought Navratilova was the only player she'd seen come along who had more talent or more potential than she had herself. I think that's the exciting it's always the exciting thing about young players, the idea of what they might become. And people could see Navratilova's talent and her game was there, but she did need to work on her athleticism. And she did develop that. And then she turned into the dominant force that, that David was describing, having, having seen throughout, you know, and people, anyone who watched Wimbledon in, in, in the 80s would know. Um, but yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't just there straight away. She did have to develop it. She thinks of it as as the one that got away. That nineteen seventy eight Wimbledon final. Does does Chris Evert? She led by she led by a set and a break. Um, and uh, I think in in her mind, though she though she says it would be it would be greedy of her to to have regrets about her career. Um, I think you know if she were to allow herself to have regrets, I I get the impression that that seventy eight final, perhaps perhaps would be one of them but um if you listen to the chris ever interview you'll you'll have uh, you'll have heard this but uh we thought it was definitely worth rehearing chrissy's take on that that wimbledon final in 78 in her own words and uh her taking me rather off guard um when i asked her about how happy she seemed 
for her opponent, Martina Navratilova, at the end of the match. This is what she had to say. And I was in love with John Lloyd. What are you going to say to that? <laughs> I don't know. I'm waiting for you to say something else. I, I, I was, you know, I, 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 I'm very honest at my age now. I'm very honest. And that Wimbledon, I met John and we'd start dating and I was, I had fallen for him. And I would have been happy if I lost love and love. You know, I would have still been happy. So I think if anything that took the little, a little bit of um, intensity out of me, um, I'm, I'm happy that Martina, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly happy for Martina, but when I look back, there, there was, that was the one I should have won. I should have won that one. I think I was upset in the break against her. And then I hit her in the head with a tennis ball and that changed the whole momentum um, of the match. And I think I relaxed too much and she got fired up and, and I think that the match, um, you know, went on and she won it, but, but I really looking back that I should have definitely won that. And on the other hand, in 1974, when my first Wimbledon never should have won it, I never should have won it because I was not the best grass court player Yvonne Gulagong and Billie Jean King were better than me on grass, but they had lost early on in the tournament, so it opened up the draw for me. But um, so anyway, I don't know if I've ever admitted that before, but but you know that match against Martina, um, you know, kudos to her because that was the start of one of nine Wimbledon titles for her. So if I'm going to lose to anybody, I w- I'm glad I lost to her. After that match in 78 did do you remember thinking wow I've got a I've got a real rival on my hands here do you remember like what you thought about Martina as a as an opponent after that it wasn't even after that um it was you know even the year before even when I was beating her I I kept saying to myself oh my gosh if if this young girl ever gets into shape and, and into, you know, physical fitness, she's going to be so dangerous because all she needed to do is really get into shape to move a little bit faster. She was already a great tennis player, you know, had a big lefty serve, had a big lefty forehand, nice slice backhand, beautiful volley. She was already a great player. But, um, at that point, a rivalry was not even in my thought process, you know, because it was still, we were still so young. And there was still Yvonne was was there, and and Billy was there, and and there are still other players that um, you know I was also playing in the finals of a lot of tournaments. Well, I bet a rivalry was in her thought process afterwards, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe she was she only had room for thoughts of John Lloyd. <laughs> <laughs> still, it still tickles me that does um, how, how candid she is, um, and, and actually the the description of hitting. Martin on the head with that ball. I mean, we watched that back and you still watch it and you go, oh, mm. blimey, she's hit a point blank range with a full punched volley right in the forehead. Uh, and and that, I mean, that could have, could have caused some serious damage. But you instinctively, you, you instinctively saw the, the affection between the two of them, that they took that as a joke. They both smiled. She ruffled her hair, uh, Martina's hair, and it was just a... I don't know. There was a camaraderie out there between the two of them. I know they they it wasn't always like that, but it was um it was a lovely moment. And I think the other thing that really struck me watching it back was whilst Martina played her way into the final, having lost that first set, when she's coming in 
sight of the finish line, you see her breathing really slowly, really deeply, filling her lungs with oxygen, just trying to calm herself down. And again, you have to take your own mind back and think, this is a woman who hasn't won nine Wimbledons yet. This, she hasn't won any of the 18 Grand Slam titles. All these absurd records, they don't, they're, they're just yet to be formed. And unless she wins this one, she might not win any of the others. <laughs> and and, and uh, you could see the nerves. I, th- I think she's called this match the most important of her 80 with Chris Evert. And as much as she is just breathing heavily and there is this contrast between Navratilova who is looking sort of really hungry but really stressed at the end and then you've got Chris Everett who's kind of calm and relaxed and as we know she was thinking of John Lloyd but (laughs) Navratilova manages to channel that into great tennis and I think she wins 12 of the last 13 points she reels off three games in a row just at the end and Everett doesn't really come close to to causing her any problems at, at that final stage. And it's, it's such a nice cushion to have when you're serving for your first Wimbledon title to get to 40 love. Um, and then she finishes it with a, with a wonderful serve volley. And, and as much as it was a lovely, uh, or it produced a lovely affectionate moment be- between the net, that, uh, that point blank shot from, uh, from ever hit, hit straight towards Navratilova's head. It, it, both of them say it caused a sea change in the match. Martina Vatilova says that was the moment when I woke up and Evert was in control at that point. So as much as we go, oh, sweet, you know, you've got Martina saying that was the most significant moment in, in any of uh, the most significant matches in any match in any that they played. And that was potentially the the most significant moment within it. And I think she said something like, you know, I was losing in the final and centre court and I've just been hit on the head, which is pretty <laughs> kind of humiliating. And I think she thought, OK, this is the low point. That's as bad as it can get. It can't get worse than this in this match. That, that so, was a Berrettini moment. It was a, yeah, <laughs> and she dealt with it rather better. Um, Imagine if it had woken Berrettini up. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Everett so, says it said of that match, in the last four games, all I could think about was going out with John. <laughs> he must have been a very alluring prospect in 1978. <laughs> oh, he's pretty dashing now. He's <laughs> 60s. <laughs> so he tells me. Um, what was it? Ber- Berrettini. Berrettini. What kind of discussions what he... are you having with John Lloyd? <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Berrettini lost to Roger Federer. And it was the moment when Federer laughed at Berrettini in the fourth round, wasn't it? At Wimbledon the, last the, year. The quickest ever fourth round men's match at Wimbledon. Last year, wow. prior to which yeah. I'd said, "Oh, this this could be close." Yeah, six one, <laughs> six two, six two. I think it was an hour and like fifteen minutes. And wasn't it? Um, wasn't it Obaldo who had said that the one score it wouldn't be was six one, six two, <laughs> six two, and then it was. <laughs> yeah, and, and Roger Federer's kids. Federer's kids were laughing at him when he fell over. God, yeah, yeah, not ideal. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So that was 1978. And then fast forward 12 years and Martina Navratilova has won another seven Wimbledon titles, seven Wimbledon singles titles. She is or has been um, a completely dominant force on grass. She has reached the final the two previous years in 88 and 89 and be- been beaten by by the, the, the new world number one, Steffi Graf, on both occasions. And, you know, a little bit like with, with Serena, you know, the narrative had been everyone, had is, there was a, a point in the narrative when everyone just assumed she would get that ninth title in. It was just a matter of time. And then the certainty started to wane a little bit. And I'm sure it did in, in Martina's own mind as well. Um, and, and by that 1990 final, you probably, I mean, I'm sure you do remember, David, it was the 90s. Um, <laughs> was there a feeling of it's now or never? She was th- 33 well, yeah. by that stage, which I know doesn't sound much in today's money. But it, in, in those days, that was, it was, it was, well, I can never think of a polite word for old. I always end up stuttering. It's just... Relatively speaking, it is old. <laughs> old. In, t- in tennis terms back then, players were not doing this, really. Um, I, I think it it was required almost as much as Roger Federer needed Robin Soderling to beat Nadal. Maybe not as quite as significant as that because Navratilova knows how to win that particular title eight times already. But she was running into Steffi Graf. They'd, they'd met each other three finals in a row. 
Her win over Graf in the 87 Wimbledon final was her sixth Wimbledon title in a row for Never Till Over. But, but you could already feel the tables turning. Graf was becoming dominant everywhere else. And the feeling was that if Graf gets to the final again, she is certainly the favourite to beat Martina. And then Garrison, we saw just a couple of clips from the, the little film that Wimbledon have put out remembering the career of Martina Navratilova. Garrison serving and volleying away past back-to-back Monica Sellis and then Steffi Graf. And she was a formidable player on Grass Garrison and she showed that with that run. But you could see in the eyes of Navratilova this realisation what a chance I have now and I am not going to let this slip through my fingers. And she... They played a grass court game against each other. It was it was great to watch two players serving and volleying against each other, but also chipping and charging the return. So you've got both players at the net at the same time, which I, I think those are always fascinating rallies to, to witness. And nobody's good enough to beat Navratilova at that particular type of game. Her movement, her instincts, the the purity with which she hits volleys, she just, the ball just pings off the strings so crisply at the right angles all the time. What a player she was on grass. It must have been so frustrating for for Zena Garrison because it's just such a perfect example of how tennis is all about matchups. You, you know, she didn't necessarily play, play in, I mean, we haven't rewatched really her her win over uh, Steffi Graf in in the semi-finals, but that's just a completely different prospect. Playing Steffi, Steffi Graf might have been the better tennis player was according to the to the rankings and the results at the time than Martina Navratilova. But but they played the same game, Garrison and Navratilova, and, and Navratilova was just just better at it. It was like Ferrer Nadal, you know, just. Or Dimitrov, oh no, Dimitrov Federer is actually a really bad example, isn't he? Beat him the last time around, scrub that. Um, <laughs> but but, but, but record-wise, apart from that, well, it exactly, always has been Federer, exactly. hasn't it? It's and, just and the soul-destroying for us. Is, I mean, Garrison has got that one big win over Navratilova at the US Open, but that was one out of 29. Mm. And so, you know, yes, she had that, that day, but you're right. I mean, they were not that dissimilar. It's just that Navratilova at that game style was just... Nigh on unbeatable, really, at her best. And there was a really um, good piece by Tomaini Cariol this this week, because obviously it's the 30th anniversary of that Wimbledon, talking about Zena Garrison, how she didn't have a clothing sponsor prior to Wimbledon that year. And the reason was, was because she was black. Because she was the fifth seed at, at that Wimbledon. Absolutely. She wasn't an out-of-nowhere no, finalist. And there were... White women ranked, you know, 40, 50 in the, in the world with lucrative sponsorship deals. So Zena Garrison was actually wearing Martina Navratilova's clothing line throughout the tournament. And I believe also sort of getting her clothes washed at Martina Navratilova's house where she was staying. And then on the eve of the final, um, Zena Garrison signed a big deal with Reebok finally. And so in the final, she's wearing Reebok kit. But that's just an indication of the kind of different sort of situations that they were at in their in their career as well. And just what Garrison was having to break through and, you know, break down barriers as well herself um, she, and, and doing it. She was the first black woman to contest a Wimbledon final since Althea Gibson um, successfully defended her title in, in 1958. And Gibson was, was in the Royal Box that day in 1990. Wearing a tracksuit, according to your notes, Matt, which is so great. Mm. 
And I believe uh, Chris Everett was also um, in the Royal Box and Chris Everett had had her career uh, ended by Zena Garrison at the US Open a year prior. So there was lots of things coming uh, coming full circle in that uh, in that match. I love that Nina Vratilova, not only is she a, a nine-time Wimbledon champion, but she's also this sort of benevolent Wimbledon mother hen type figure. We had the story of Andrea Jaeger, her 1983 Wimbledon final op- opponent who ended up in floods of tears banging on Martina's door the night before <laughs> their final and Navratilova comforting her after she'd had a fight with her dad. We've got her doing the laundry of her 1990 uh, final opponent and providing her with kit for the fortnight. I mean, I wonder how many gems of stories there are like that yet to be uncovered. Um yeah, it's those it's those little nuggets that that make these stories for me. Um, yeah, I love it. And and Billie Jean King was coaching Martina Navratilova at the time of that nineteen ninety final. I had no idea that that they had that they had worked together, and I feel uh, I feel embarrassed they, about that. And they ended up tying for the record of most wimbledon titles between them overall if you consider singles doubles mixed doubles 20 titles in all those two head and shoulders ahead of any of the whatever any of the men did and that that figure of nine singles titles for Navratilova, it's still quite something to look down all the lists and realize that's the one that's the one that stands out and it still doesn't get as much credit as it should we, we've got about 10 minutes of this pod left, which should be just enough time, Matt, for you to, to rattle through all of the records that, that Martina made and, and so many of them that, that still stand and are probably still likely to stand for, for goodness knows how long because they are that breathtaking. Yeah. I mean, when I think of Navratilova, I think of, I kind of think of like a distance runner stretching their lead ahead of the field and like how, how fun. How amazing that is to watch, to see someone so far ahead, just getting further and further ahead. And that was kind of what Martina Navratilova was like in the 80s, um, obviously, especially at Wimbledon. But just generally in the 80s, she had seasons where she had an 86 and one record in 1983. Her, her, <laughs> only, loss, her <laughs> only loss was at the French Open. She had a 78 and two, a 90 and three and an 89 and three um she won six consecutive slam singles titles in a 14 month stretch she once had a con- winning streak of 74 matches she had other winning streaks of 58 and 54 um she was the first female athlete to earn more than 1 million dollars in a year um she won 1983 wimbledon with her matches averaging 47 minutes that was <laughs> that was how dominant she was there, and I think I think one of the best Wimbledon stats is that her her last title there came in two thousand and three when she won the mixed doubles with Leander Pays. I mean, we're talking about nineteen ninety here, being you know pretty much the end of her career. Well, she won a Wimbledon title thirteen years later, and I think she won a U.S. Open title even later than that. Um, so just an extraordinary longevity, but also these these seasons with dominance that we've never seen before in tennis. 
Well, that longevity, Matt, Matt, is is something that she's particularly proud of. David, you had the chance to, well, you've, you've interviewed her many times, but you interviewed her for, for the podcast um, when you were working together at BT Sport back in, in 2015. And you asked her what of her career achievements she is the most proud of. I think consistency, body of work, really, uh, but consistency in both singles and doubles and, and as well as year in, year out, you know, really staying at the top uh, or, or number two for so many years, not really, no fluctuations uh, and uh, and a and, uh, lot of wins as well. But for the most part, uh, being able to evolve and change, adapt and keep winning. Is there a win specifically that stands out? Not really. I, I mean, uh, I think first time I, I beat Chris Everett, I lost to her, I don't know, five or six times. And then I finally beat her in Washington, uh, at the Virginia Stimson of Washington. My mom was there and, uh, and, I, and I couldn't sleep. I was in the quarterfinals, but I ended up winning the tournament. And uh, that was a very memorable moment, even though very few people were there to, to see it. Uh, and of course, the first Wimbledon was perhaps the happiest I was on the court, but also at the same time sad because my family again wasn't there uh, because they were in the Czechoslovakia, not Czech Republic. And I didn't even know if they could see the match. So bittersweet. Uh, so there were some very happy moments, but also also, also sad. And um, anyway, it's hard to pick your favorite. You mentioned Chris Everts and... We see you a lot these days. Uh, I see you at the, the Grand Slams that, that I work at, and you seem to get on famously. Oh, yeah. Was that always the case? I mean, you, you know, the, the, the nature of a rivalry is that you doing well makes that other person upset. Well, I think it helps that there's a net in between, <laughs> so you don't really pummel each other like boxers do. But, uh, but still, of course, uh, it's a very much a one-on-one situation, and, and we had so many. We played each other 80 times, and there were some tough times uh, where we, you know, we're not the best of friends, but we never lost respect for each other and uh, and empathy, and uh, and and even though we had those couple of ups and downs, oh, at the end uh, we became best friends, and uh, now you know have a very very special relationship. And I, I suppose ultimately there are there's only the two of you that knows what that was like to contest all of those finals. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's a it's a what it's a it's a. Uh, Rivalry for the ages, isn't it? Uh, it's really one of a kind. I mean, you, you talk about other other players, and we've you know they, they play maybe half the times that, that that we have played against each other, and uh, over decades. And I remember when when Chris was when I first came on the tour, and Chris was playing against Ivan Gulagong, and and they were saying, "Oh, this is the most amazing rivalry." I'm like, "What about me?" Because I'd already beaten Chris a few times at that point, but I was not mentioned in the same breath. But now, you know, it's it's a rivalry that defines the sport, and I'm pretty proud of it. I could listen to those two talk about one another all day long, yeah. I think. I, I also love how competitive Martina still so candidly is. She's not afraid to admit it either. And, and even when later in that interview when I asked her about whether she ever imagines what it would be like to play Serena at her peak if they could have put themselves at their peak against each other. She's, she's trying to be, I mean, she's respectful, absolutely respectful to Serena Williams, but there is such a desire for her to show that her tennis could have stood up to Serena. And she says, I, I think she would have got the better of me on a hard court. I think we would have been similar on grass. I'd have got the better of it on clay. Her serve would have been such a, an impact in the matches. But if we got into the rallies, my game was all about putting the ball in places that she doesn't want it to be in and using angles. And just it just 
creates such vivid thoughts in my mind about what that matchup would be like. That there was a line from from Martina in that that little uh, documentary piece that Wimbledon put together with Chris Evert narrating uh, Martina's nine victories at, at Wimbledon or, or narrating the, the story of those nine, um, which we all watched prior to recording this. And after, after I think it was that, that first win in 1978, she said, I always wanted to be known as the player that played tennis the way it ought to be played. <laughs> yeah. Which I found a really interesting interesting line um that she had that awareness of kind of the purity of her game and it reminded me of 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 the line we talked about um John McEnroe giving after his his win over Chris Lewis in in the final which we featured in our worst Grand Slam finals of all time sorry John um but he said something really similar he said I wanted to win the right way um, and it really fascinates me that although these people are mega competitive, win at all costs, don't care if I'm winning, ugly, whatever, they also do delight in in the way they do it and being, I don't know, there's a certain sort of smugness, isn't there, about being what most considered to be purists, tennis purists. I can't remember the golfer, but I've... But I know a golfer once retired saying, I have too much respect for the sport to play it badly. And that's why I'm stepping away now. And it's almost like they, they have such respect for the game, Navratilova and McEnroe, that they want to do it well and with style. And, they, and I think they both genuinely thought and were, and were right that in those days, attacking tennis most of the time beat defensive tennis and getting to the net first we see how how difficult it is to pass them because they put the ball in the corner and they knock off the volleys and that has probably changed with the way the game has changed the way the courts have changed string technology but back then you know take just looking at Martina Navratilova how do you beat her on grass in those years when she was so dominant and there's something there's something really special about her best you know, her best achievements and her connection with Wimbledon because when when she was growing up, I've heard her say that Wimbledon was the one dream she could have. You know, even even before she dreamed of America and Billie Jean King and Chris Everett, she saw Wimbledon on the telly and I'm sure she would have heard stories of Yaroslav Drobny winning and sort of knowing that she could be on those courts too. And to think that she did and she won it so many times and is the player that you would associate with Wimbledon above, above probably anyone else um, is really, really special, I think. And with that in mind, it, it, really, it really hits me. I mean, she mentions it, but she kind of doesn't dwell on it. It really hits me how hard it must have been for her, for her family not to have been there when she won that first title, when she achieved her dreams, because they... They couldn't be there um, because she had defected to the US and they were still in Czechoslovakia. But they they drove, I think, Matt to the to the East German border just to be able to watch think, that match on the I think uh, it was the, the West, West German the West. Border. Sorry, yeah, excuse me, it would have been the West German border just to be able to watch the match on TV. Mm. And yet, Martina didn't know that because she wasn't able to you know, just contact her parents whenever she wanted to. So she was playing that final, not knowing whether her parents were able to watch it. Um, and she, I mean, she later found out that they were watching it, but 
yeah, I mean, just just things that we will never have situations like that ever again. It's kind of it's alien to me. Um, hang hang on, Matt. We've learned not to say <laughs> n- never. We've had a heck of a year. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think Martina and John McEnroe have in common is an absolute love affair with just hitting a tennis ball with a tennis racket. And even now we see them at tennis tournaments, they are always finding somebody to practice with. They don't need to practice for anything. They just want to hit the tennis ball. And there's still still an absolute love of, of, of what you can do with the racket. I've, I remember talking to Martina. Whenever I commentated with her, I felt like I was learning stuff every single commentary and one of the things that she would say is she has been really interested to see what it is like hitting the ball with the new technology with the new strings that you have with the new racket frames to see what possibilities she could have had that she didn't have available to her back then i mean she was such an exquisite talent and now she's got this new Mm. weapon that normally she wouldn't have had option to use and i think that idea of love of the sport is really important as well because I've read that um, she looked up the word obsession in the dictionary when people were talking about her pursuit of going for nine Wimbledons and people were talking about it like it was an obsession. And and she, she said, no, it's not that because what she found the obsession to mean was an irrational reverence. And she said, I prefer to consider my love for Wimbledon a rational reverence. And I think that just demonstrates perfectly the relationship she had with the sport and also, most importantly, Wimbledon. Oh, that's so perfect. I do. I, it does. It does perplex me that that both Martina and John McEnroe haven't done more coaching over their careers. Maybe, maybe it's that Glenn Hoddle thing of making it look too easy. Maybe the last thing you want in a coach is somebody that can just pick up a racket and behave as if it's a, yeah. a magic wand. Yes, I mean, there was that story, wasn't there, when Glenn Hoddle was the manager of England's football team and David Beckham was struggling to hit the top corner with free kicks and Glenn just walked up and said, no, no, do it like this. And, <laughs> and the whole team looked on as if to say, oh, crikey, yeah, right, we, we, we can't do that, Glenn. <laughs> that's the problem. And <laughs> that's the thing with McEnroe and Navratilova. They're just better than everybody yeah. else. Yeah, well, I mean... Hey, if if there were if there were unlimited days for Wimbledon where he lived, we could uh, we could relive all nine of her her wins. But it felt fitting to to kind of cover off her her Wimbledon arc, or certainly her singles Wimbledon arc. I mean, how many doubles titles did she win, Matt? Mixed and and women's eleven overall. Not too shabby. Mm-hmm. And she won one of them with Chris Evert. I think her first one yeah. in nineteen seventy six. She won with Chris Evert, which is just lovely um that's our first trip down uh, wimbledon memory lane are, oh. are we having fun yet it's been glorious great i'm i'm, um, I'm into it <laughs> uh what have we got tomorrow matt we have uh john McEnroe versus bjorn borg in the 1980 men's final widely Stonker. considered to be very much one of the best matches of all time Look at David, he's giddy about it. We, oh, I'm so excited. We gave David the research for this one and he has not stopped smiling, I think, ever since. <laughs> Have you watched the film, David, with Shia LaBeouf? 
Yes, I have. It, I did, have. did you watch it as part of the research or had you previously no, watched I, it? No, I went to the cinema and saw that. Matt, have um, you seen the film with Shia LaBeouf? I have not seen it, actually, but I do remember you doing a, a review. film review podcast of it. It's yes. amazing we haven't we haven't done more film reviews, isn't it, <laughs> as a podcast? No, we, we, we haven't got any... We didn't get any calls after that <laughs> to present a new show, so... Uh, Extraordinary. Um, well, you go away and watch it, Matt. You've got 24 hours, yes. a bit less. Um, it's Wimbledon Relived. It's been great. I'm loving it already. David's sporting an on-the-boat T-shirt, which we need to discuss because, uh, as far as I'm concerned, he has not been officially granted that status. Um, so questions will be asked um and uh, i'll update you on that situation tomorrow um any shout outs no we're saving our shout outs we have a shout out to our mascot wimbledon <gasps> mascot gerald the cat gerald the cat he gives such good face <laughs> he, he's a bit of a poser he isn't really he is. he does like to pose for a picture yeah but also he poses whilst also giving a face that says i'm not into this <laughs> I'm, I'm not into your photo taking <laughs> I'm just doing this because I, I want to drink out of the Wimbledon mug. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. nothing to do with your picture. As has now seemingly become a sort of standard of our wonderful mascots, he's done He's done a photo shoot. <laughs> he's done a, a, a photo shoot themed by the slam that he's sponsoring. And it is, it's wonderful. And we'll be drip feeding the spoils of that over the next fortnight. But yes, thank you to Gerald. Thank you for, to Daryl, his owner, who won our inaugural uh, French Open uh, tennis podcast quiz, but finished dramatically runner-up in our second uh, tennis podcast Wimbledon quiz. David's looking smug because he got a podium finish, which is a significant yeah. improvement on his first performance. Um, so welcome, Daryl. Welcome, Daryl, and welcome, Gerald, into the Wimbledon relived mascotting fold and well done to katura the wimbledon quiz champion who is the owner of our first ever tennis podcast mascot charlie the ferret um so yes all the all the mascot owners doing very well in the quiz congratulations to katura who won in a very dramatic tiebreaker it was all very nail-biting right daryl dethroned <laughs> David David and Daryl were were texting, trolling one another throughout because they went to university together, by the way. So David's got a special connection to Gerald the cat. Have you ever met Gerald? I don't know. No, I haven't. Right, on that note... (laughs) uh, It's been our first Wimbledon Relived. It's been a pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. 